welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 114. My name is Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. Well, this week I've been playing Pokemon Scarlet. It's a technical mess of a game, but still manages to bring the Pokemon magic. I've also been playing Pentiment from Obsidian. This is a 16th century narrative adventure. And also, Season of Plunder is finishing in Destiny 2. So I'm going to bring my thoughts on the current state of the game, and I've also been playing Somerville as well. So it's a busy show, let's get to it! And welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week! Yeah, I'm good this week, although I am recovering from a slight cold, so if I sound a little bit off on the podcast then that is the reason why, you know. This week is an exciting week as we've got the Game Awards 2022 coming up on Friday. And you never know what trailers we are going to get. I've got my fingers crossed behind my back for a new Tears of the Kingdom trailer. Well, today I'm going to go over some great games I've been playing, including the latest Pokemon entry on Nintendo Switch. We've got Pentiment and also Somerville as well. I'm also going to be covering the latest news. I did used to have a separate podcast for the news, but I decided to roll it all into one. And later on, I'm going to go over some news about another chance to get into the Street Fighter 6 beta coming up later this month. Sonic Frontiers has got a roadmap of content. Plus, we've got some great games coming out on Xbox Game Pass in December 2022. Well, before we get into it, it'd be great if you could leave a review over there on Apple Podcasts. Really helps get the podcast some more eyes on it. I do have a link in the podcast description or the show notes. If you like the show and you want to leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out your review on a future episode of the podcast. Well, this week in video games is also powered by Patreon, and you can check out the right tier for you over there on patreon.com forward slash this week in video games. So the tiers have been revamped into five easy to understand categories. You've got bronze, silver, gold, platinum, and producer. So bronze will get you early access to the podcast, silver, get you audio versions of selected this week in video games content, plus your name in the description of every podcast and every YouTube video. Gold gets you exclusive monthly bonus content like my upcoming God of War Ragnarok spoiler cast. And also, Platinum gets your name read out on every podcast or YouTube video. The final tier is Producer, which goes above and beyond to support this week in video games. And tiers start at $3 per month, which is less than a single cup of coffee. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash this week in video games and find the right tier for you today. Well, that is about it for my waffly intro, so let's get into what I've been playing this week. Well, this week I've been checking out Pokemon Scarlet. You know, technically, this game does have a lot of issues, but gameplay-wise, it is real good fun. I'll bring my review first up in the show. I do tend to fall off Pokemon games pretty quickly, but I can see myself playing through this one to the end, and maybe even into the end game. I do tend to fall off Pokemon games pretty quickly, but I can see myself playing deep into the end game for this one. I've also been playing Pentiment, a new narrative adventure game from Obsidian. So this one is a surprising game, one with depth and a bunch of great characters, so I definitely recommend checking this one out. And finally, I've been playing Somerville, which does share some DNA from Inside and Limbo. This is a fun alien invasion story, and I'll get into my review of that later up in the show. Without further delay, let's dive into my review of Pokemon Scarlet. Pokemon 
Pokemon Scarlet and Violet are the ninth generation of Pokemon games, and finally, we've got a true open-world Pokemon adventure that we've wanted for years. Unfortunately, the monkey paw curled at that moment, and together with this fantastic open world, we've got some of the biggest technical problems we've ever seen in a Pokemon game, perhaps even ever. Now, for some, this hasn't diminished their fun. For others, it is a step too far from Game Freak, the Pokemon company, and also Nintendo as well. But buried under this technical mess is one of the best Pokemon experiences I've ever had. So today, let's dive into my review of Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Well, Game Freak have done it. They've crafted a wonderful open-world Pokemon in Scarlet and Violet. So getting through the start of any new generation of Pokemon game tends to be a slog. Once you step out from your school after the tutorial hours, you can pretty much go anywhere that you please. Now, the world is filled with powerful trainers, gym leaders, and high-level Pokemon. The Paldea region has been designed fairly well, and it is based on Spain. Now, it's a good mix of indicating where to go, not holding your hand too much, although do bear this in mind, it is a Pokemon game, and it does allow you to get lost. That does mean you can encounter Pokemon that are way above your level, but also way below your level as well. Also means you can run into trainers a few levels above, and if you manage to take them down, the game can be very, very exciting indeed. Well, much like Pokemon Legends Arceus, you can see all the Pokemon throughout the world, and there definitely are lots of them. Over 400 species at launch, with the potential for more to be added at a later date. And Pokemon tend to roam the world in packs now, rather than individually, which is a great sight to see. You know, you've got a gaggle of Starly, for example. And Pokemon appear to be more intelligent this time too, as they interact with each other, sometimes even bullying one another. And the designs of the Pokemon this generation are very good. They're bright, they're interesting, including the new Fido dog-style Pokemon being one of my early favourites. So we've got a huge open world in the form of the Paldea region, and getting around is nice and easy, given our legendary Pokemon, which we get very early in the game this time. They help us traverse around the environment by doubling up as a vehicle. So your legendary Pokemon acts like a motorbike so you can hop on its back, and the variant depends on which Pokemon, Scarlet or Violet game you get. As you progress through the game, you can upgrade your legendary Pokemon to have new abilities, including dashing, climbing, swimming, and also gliding, and gliding is an absolute game changer. So while Paldea offers the player freedom, it does feel like a sparsely populated open world with not that much to do. This isn't like Breath of the Wild, where you felt there was an adventure around every corner. That's a shame, given Breath of the Wild is now approaching a six-year-old game, and we still haven't iterated on that on the Nintendo Switch platform. Pokemon Scarlet and Violet does feel like a net improvement over Pokemon Legends Arceus from earlier on in 2022, given the sheer amount of Pokemon that you can catch, but the level of detail in the open world is disappointing compared to other recent releases like Xenoblade Chronicles 3, which also released on Nintendo Switch this year. Paldea has plenty of towns to explore and people to meet. The towns themselves have a decent amount of design and thought to them, although you can't enter many of the buildings and the areas surrounding the towns are relatively barren. This is likely a combination of things related to the amount of time Game Freak gets to work on these games, as well as the processing power of the Nintendo Switch. Scarlet and Violet's main story campaign is really good, and it managed to elicit some emotion from me. You know, normally, I play through the campaigns, I'm just skipping through the dialogue really, really quickly, but this time, the story did grab me, and I was invested in the characters, and even the legendary Pokémon. The supporting scaffolding around the main story feels a little bit lacklustre here in Scarlet and Violet. 
The NPCs around the world are still there to offer you tips and tricks, but it feels much more like a cookie-cutter experience, and it sort of feels like they aren't really invested in it. This again is likely a product of not having enough time to flesh out the world with the NPC dialogue. Scarlet and Violet has three main story strands. You've got the standard Victory Road, where you have to take on a bunch of gym leaders to become a Pokemon champion. You've got a storyline about the bad students at the school, and then you've got a storyline about the five Titan Pokemon. So each storyline has its own characters and story threads, which Game Freak have done really well to make them work, and they also interweave together. The gym leaders have real character, and the path of the Titan storyline is entertaining as we get to learn more about Arvin, our rival-turned-friend, in Scarlet and Violet. While I felt that the Team Star storyline is probably the weakest of the three, it is nice to have the option, and all three storylines are woven together very well into a singular package. Well, the biggest standout feature of Pokemon Scarlet and Violet is the open world although there's a number of features that have returned from recent Pokemon games like Legends Arceus and also Sword and Shield. We can customise our characters to a certain extent, although the variety in skin tone is still severely lacking, reduced to only four options. And you don't have the ability to customise your outfit as much as you could in previous entries. You know, Pokemon games are quite strange. Great features don't seem to carry from one game to the next. You know, given the team at Game Freak has been split down the middle, to work on multiple Pokemon games at the same time. It appears as if features are difficult to transfer between teams. I don't know if it's because they work in silos, or it's hard to port from one game to another, but for players it feels a little bit disjointed and confusing. One great new feature is the ability to throw out your Pokemon using the R button, and they can go and independently fight for you. They only earn about a quarter of the XP, but it's a decent way to level up quicker. Some Pokemon have to be walked to level up, and you can still wedge something into the Joy-Con and walk around in circles to level them up quickly without having to do any of the work on your part. You know, throwing out your Pokemon is called Let's Go, which again is a little bit confusing given the Let's Go games like Pikachu and Eevee for the Nintendo Switch. It's all part of the Game Freak and Pokemon Modern Day jank, which, to be honest, is quite hard to explain. Battling your Pokemon stays largely the same, albeit for a new mechanic called terrestrializing, where you cover your Pokemon in a jewel-like substance to improve their battle mechanics. While it is a nice visual change, it also means Pokemon can have any terror type, including ones that they wouldn't normally have. The result of this are interesting Pokemon combinations that you wouldn't normally get, but unfortunately Scarlet and Violet didn't take on the more interesting elements of Legends Arceus, which to be honest is a shame. One thing that really stands out with these games is the performance on Nintendo Switch. The game hasn't been optimised at all, and it runs very, very poorly. So Pokemon characters pop in and out, and they clip into the ground. And then when you look off into the distance, characters walking, they look like they're running in stop-motion animation because the frame rate is so bad. You know, one possible reason for this is because it's running on Nintendo Switch, which, to be honest, is now legacy hardware, with many modern mobile phones capable of running the game much better. I don't think the Nintendo Switch is the main culprit though, given Xenoblade Chronicles 3 also came out this year, runs very well and looks beautiful. The environments in Pokemon Scarlet are fairly empty, the definition of the ground and the grass looks worse than Breath of the Wild, which as I say is approaching nearly a 6 year old game at this point. I don't think the blame rests with the Nintendo Switch, I think the blame has to be pointed at Game Freak themselves. You know, Pokemon is the largest entertainment franchise of all time simply rakes in millions and millions of dollars, pounds and yen every month. 
Well, it's clear that Scarlet and Violet needed more time to be ready. It's pretty unacceptable that a game could be released in this state, let alone as big as a mainline Pokemon entry. So Legends Arceus that released earlier on this year, it was exactly the same thing and it didn't run very well, and yet Game Freak wanted to release another entry in the same year. I don't think anyone would have minded if Pokemon Scarlet or Violet didn't come out this year and was pushed into 2023 or 2024, given we had Arceus in January 2022. It's unclear at the moment where the pressure is to release. You know, is it Nintendo? Is it the Pokemon company? Or is it Game Freak themselves? So what is sad is the fact that these issues probably won't get fixed because they can release a completely broken game like Pokemon Scarlet and Violet and still sell millions of copies and make even more millions of cash. There isn't an incentive for them to fix these games because they're going to sell really well irrespective of the performance. Now, perhaps kids have a lower threshold of what is acceptable, but I don't think this is true because plenty of free-to-play games perform hundreds of times better than Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. It's worth repeating, this is the largest entertainment franchise of all time, and we're also greeted with the news that the game sold 10 million copies in three days, which is absolutely unbelievable, and this is why these issues probably won't get fixed anytime soon. Underneath all the performance issues is one of the better Pokemon games that I've played in more than 10 years. You know, I fell in love with the original Game Boy game when it first came out. I played Shield, Brilliant Diamond, Legends Arceus, and they're all fine, but Scarlet's gameplay and adventures are definitely much more fun and engaging, and you know, it does make the performance issues even more sad. Overall, if you are a Pokemon fan, then you're going to get a lot out of this game. The open world is a major step forward for the franchise, and this is the closest we've got to a Pokemon game that fans have been clamouring for since the reveal of Sword and Shield. Legends Arceus was an iteration in the right direction, and Pokemon Scarlet and Violet is another. But Game Freak, goddammit, you know, you've got to take more time on these games. There's no need to release two Pokemon games in the same year. It's clearly not working for you, as both of them suffered with major technical issues. You know, the game is fun, and I will keep playing past the end game, but the performance is absolutely rubbish. And as a paying customer, you know, we just shouldn't be accepting this kind of behaviour. You know, look at what happened to Cyberpunk and CD Projekt Red. After they released Cyberpunk in its completely broken state, CD Projekt's Red share price just absolutely took a nosedive. And Nintendo appeared to be immune from that type of backlash, but either the Nintendo Switch is creaking, or Game Freak needs some help. Well, the game was developed by Game Freak, it was published by the Pokemon Company and Nintendo, it's available for Nintendo Switch and was originally released on the 18th of November, 2022. Well, that is it for my review of Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. There definitely is a really fun Pokemon game in there, albeit with the technical issues. Well, that is it for now for Pokemon, but next up, let's check out my review of Pentiment. Pentiment is a detective mystery where you've got to solve a series of murders against the backdrop of the 16th century Bavaria. This isn't your stereotypical video game, but the team at Obsidian clearly have a passion for the subject matter. And that leads us to this entertaining late entry in what could be one of 2022's best games of the year. Pentiment's narrative is definitely a strong point with murder and not knowing who to trust at its core. The game has a feeling of going through an old-style textbook and reading up on the subject matter directly. You know, the game swerved between faith and truth, but also tells the story of farmers, priests, scandal, and murder. 
We play as Andreas Mailer, an artist who's been hired by the church to illustrate manuscripts in the town of Tassing. Printing presses are becoming very popular and the church is trying to gain control of publishing to control the messages that come out. Once they had a really tight grip on the distribution of books, but given the rise of publishing, that is no longer the case. This is a problem for the church because many of the population are starting to question their beliefs and taxes and churches are squeezing the public for more and more money and the tension amongst the population is rising. The cherry on the icing on the cake is a visiting nobleman who manages to get himself murdered. So while his friend has been accused of the crime, it's down to Andreas to find the actual murderer. Given it's set in the 16th century, there's no fancy gadgets to use, no modern analysing techniques. You've got to use your street smarts and talk to people to find out what went down. Andreas has a sketchbook which he uses to sketch up leads, plus he can draw maps and character profiles. All of this is good, but the best way to solve the case is to talk to residents and gather clues and piece them together one by one. Well, there's a decent amount of choice in Pentiment. For example, you get to define where Andreas came from, where he studied, and both of those have an effect on the outcome of conversations. Different dialogue boxes pop up depending on which options you choose for Andreas' backstory. And if you decide Andreas has a background in occult magic, then you might be able to decipher symbols. Or, if you have a background in religious studies, then it becomes easier to fend off the minions of the church. So background choices also help when it comes to interrogating other characters in the game, as they can lead to favours or different evidence-gathering techniques. Now, if you sound off about how much you don't like the church then the peasants who agree with you will find you and give you the latest gossip. Well, in terms of gameplay, you have to go around talking to people and gathering clues. This talking takes up valuable time, and your day is sectioned up into chunks. And the core of the gameplay is all about relationships, earning the trust of who you want to pry clues from, and developing those friendships. Pentiment is a detective game first, but it's also about the relationships with the townsfolk of Tassing. Mechanics from other detective games certainly exist in the world of Pentiment. Ciphers to figure out, secrets to find and notes to uncover. And what is different about this game is the world around the main detective mechanics is so rich and vast with such attention to detail. So I shouldn't be too surprised with games like The Outer Worlds and Fallout New Vegas under the same roof from Obsidian. Pentiment is on a smaller scale, but it's equally as rich in the writing. The objective of this game is to pin the murder on someone, and there's plenty of options here. Who and where you eventually blame for the murder does have an impact on this small community, but it's verging on spoiler territory to go into any more detail. Now, given the game is rich in detail and characters, it'll probably take you more than one playthrough to get the required detail from Pentiment. A single playthrough takes roughly 12 hours, but you're going to be wanting to go back again, and given this vast array of choices, and also you've got the skills of the writing team as well. This is a world that you're going to want to spend time in and get to know the characters. The art style is fantastic too, and it's classic medieval artwork with its own distinctive style. There aren't too many other games out there with this amount of character, and props to Obsidian and Microsoft for putting this game out. This game feels like a product of Xbox Game Pass and Microsoft Game Studios. I don't really know if this would exist without the service. It's great to see big studios have the breather room to create interesting little projects like this rather than knock out the 19th version of Call of Duty in 15 years. The artwork in the game also reflects the characters. Depending on the levels of their education, their background, their artwork changes. So when you're talking, you know, if they're getting angry, the ink starts to bubble and get messy. And if the characters are old, then their artwork will fade at the edges. 
Yeah, it's the little touches like that that make Pentiment very, very special. Pentiment is a must-try game. Yeah, it's interesting. It's got great characters with real depth and shows off a version of 16th century Bavaria you probably haven't seen before. If you like your Detective Adventures, then this one probably is for you, but I would recommend Pentiment to anyone with a gap in their backlog of games. It's also available on Xbox Game Pass, so I reckon this one is a must-try. Well, the game was developed by Obsidian Entertainment and was published by Microsoft Game Studios. It's available for the Xbox and PC and was originally released in November 2022. Well, that is it for my review of Pentiment. Really, really fun game and really nice to see Obsidian put out a unique little title. There's so much depth to these characters and the artwork is fantastic. I reckon it could sneak onto some's best games of the year in 2022. Well, that is it for Pentiment, but next up, let's check out my review of Somerville. Well, Somerville is a recent release, one that had quite a lot of steam behind the marketing, given its links to Playdeads, Limbo and Inside. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite live up to those classic games, albeit having a wonderful tone all throughout the game. The gameplay and the puzzles don't quite live up to the hype of the original trailers. Somerville puts you in the shoes of a small family who appear to be living a relatively normal life, and then aliens land and start a mass invasion, and life as they knew it is now over. The family is torn apart and it's your job to reunite everyone. So Jumpship, the developers of Somerville, share some DNA with Playdead. There's hints of the greatness of Limbo and Inside in this game. There's no dialogue, there's tons of atmosphere, and there's a side-scrolling puzzler where you've got to navigate through tricky environments. Now, Somerville does give you a taste of the 3D environment, which switches up the gameplay quite nicely. Well, the opening hour of Somerville is very exciting, but after that, the game does start to tail off. The music, the tension, the visuals are all done very well, but after the opening bombast, it does fall a little bit flat. The puzzles are uneven, and the game tends to drag in the middle, but the artwork is fantastic from a visual perspective alone. This is one of the best games I've seen all year, but unfortunately the gameplay doesn't back up the visual treats. Somerville is a decent sci-fi tale, similar to something like War of the Worlds, with a modern spin on things. So you've got big set-piece moments that'll have you sitting on the edge of your seat, and the game does a great job of drawing emotion out of you, whether you're running away from the spotlight or walking through a refugee-filled hospital. Now, while there are big moments full of action, Somerville does quieter emotional moments very well too. In terms of the gameplay, you have to make your way through the levels, although it's a little bit more complex than Limbo, for example, getting from the left side of the screen to the right. The alien invaders have left behind some strange matter. This manages to amplify energy sources that you have, for example, light or electricity. It also can be used to clear paths to help you get through levels. Pull the trigger and you turn on these strange alien stones into a liquid. Pull the other trigger and it goes back the other way, liquid into stone, and therein lays the puzzle mechanic. Yeah, many of the puzzles are genius. For example, when you have to displace water. Unfortunately, as the game goes on, the puzzles tend to drag, either becoming quite repetitive or going through the full array of what a puzzle mechanic can do. Now, while it's cool at first inspection, it quickly becomes dry and doesn't manage to hold my attention for the full length of the game. It's not a long game by any means. It's anywhere between four to eight hours, depending on how you play, so it is possible to finish in one or two sittings. Somerville is largely let down by how the game feels and its puzzles. It looks and it sounds great, and the story is very interesting. 
Limbo and his side had been in 2D, so perhaps the jump to 3D was quite tricky in terms of recapturing that same feel. Many of the ingredients are here for a great game, it just never really allows you to get into the flow. This is compounded by technical issues and I played on PC via Xbox Game Pass and unfortunately it didn't run that well. Overall though, I would recommend Somerville, there are genuine wow moments in the game, especially in the opening hour. And while the game doesn't manage to keep up the pace for the whole game, it's not too long and it's visually stunning, plus it nails the feeling of a sci-fi adventure. It is also available on Xbox Game Pass, so I'd recommend trying it out there. Well, the game was developed by Jumpship, it was published by Jumpship as well, it was released on PC, Xbox Series S and X, also Xbox One, and it was originally released on the 15th of November, 2022. Well, that is it for my review of Somerville, but next up, let's check out the all-platform charts. Well, at number 10 this week, at one place from last week's number 11, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons. New in at number 9, it's Just Dance 2023. At number 8, at one place from last week's number 9, it's Nintendo Switch Sports. And at number 7, up three places from last week's number 10, it's Sonic Frontiers. At number 6, down four places from last week's number 2, it's Pokemon Scarlet. And at number 5, down one place from last week's number 4, it's God of War Ragnarok. At number 4, up four places from last week's number 8, it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. And at number 3, down two places from last week's number 1, it's Pokemon Violet. At number 2, it's Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, up three places from last week's number 5. And back in at number 1, up two places from last week's number 3, it's FIFA 23. I imagine FIFA 23 is up there because of the World Cup at the moment, but congrats to the team at EA on that final FIFA game. Well, that is it for the all-platform charts, but next up, let's check out some news. And first of all, we've got news from Wesley LeBlanc over at Game Informer, and this is about the Street Fighter 6 beta sign-up. Well, Capcom have announced the second closed beta test for Street Fighter 6. It's going to begin later this month, and you can register for a chance to check out the game right now. The second beta will officially begin on December the 16th, and run through to December the 19th on PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PC via Steam, it's going to feature cross-play across all three platforms. As for what is available, Capcom lists ranked matches, casual matches, battle hub matches, open tournaments, extreme battle, the game center, and Street Fighter VI's training mode. So if you'd like to sign up for potentially participating in the second closed beta, you can do so, and I'll put a link down in the description and the show notes for that one. You know, it is important to note, though, that completing Capcom's application does not guarantee you the selection for the beta, Selection is handled via a lottery system according to Capcom, not on a first-come, first-served basis. You will need to have a registered Capcom ID to even apply, and it must be linked to your platform account, so you make sure you do that first. Other than that, good luck in getting in. The response to the first closed beta for Street Fighter 6 a few weeks ago was quite positive, so it sounds like the second beta is going to be a great time as well. Well, next up in the news, this one comes from Tom Phillips over at Eurogamer, We've got Assassin's Creed Valhalla is getting Destiny and Monster Hunter armor. So Ubisoft's final update for Assassin's Creed Valhalla is now available a little earlier than expected and contains one last serving of story for those looking to see off Heroin Evil in style. 
There's still a few surprises left in store, however, as spotted by a Destiny data miner, MAK moderator, including armor sets themed around Destiny and Monster Hunter characters. So Destiny's Crucible boss, Lord Shax and Saint-14, will also see their armor sets recreated in Valhalla. There's also an armor set designed to look like something out of Monster Hunter. Well, this isn't the first time that Assassin's Creed has offered a crossover cosmetic item, you know, to connect to other video game franchises. Memorably, the ancient Egypt set Assassin's Creed Origins included a Final Fantasy crossover that let you ride around on a chocobo. A few months back, data miners discovered Iron Man and Thanos sets in Valhalla as well, which were also still to see release. You know, with Valhalla's content updates over now, it's likely we're going to see Ubisoft drip feed these new skin launches as a way to keep people popping back into Valhalla until next year's Baghdad set Assassin's Creed Mirage arrives. And as a reminder, this week's final content update includes several nice setups for that game, including an unexpected appearance by Roshan, your mentor in Mirage, voiced by the brilliant Shorey Agdashlu. Well, there has also been an update to the story, so they say Ubisoft have now officially confirmed its Assassin's Creed and Destiny crossover event, which will see sci-fi armor for sale in Valhalla this month, as well as Assassin's Creed styles in Destiny 2. The collaboration will go live on 6th of December, when the Destiny cosmetics themed around Lord Shax and Saint-14 become available to buy in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. The Assassin's Creed theme sets I can see an Apple of Eden-style ghost shell. You know, that's going to go live in Destiny 2's Eververse shop. One final note from Ubisoft confirms a free weekend for Valhalla is on the way, you can be able to dip your toe into Ivor's Viking Adventures for no cost from the 15th until the 19th of December. Well, next up, we've got a Sonic Frontiers roadmap. This one comes from Brian Shea out of Game Informer. So when Sonic Frontiers came out at the start of November, it received one of the better receptions from fans and critics of any of the 3D Sonic Hedgehog titles. So in my review, I praised many elements of the Sonic team's first open zone attempt. But my main takeaway was, I can't wait to see how Sonic Team iterates on the formula in future entries. So while those future entries are likely years away, the developer today gave us a glimpse into how it plans to expand Sonic Frontiers through 2023 through a content roadmap. The Sonic Frontiers 2023 content shows off a series of future content updates to the game. The three updates will roll out to the players of Sonic Frontiers over the course of 2023 at no additional cost. And while no timeline is given, it's probably safe to assume that Update 2 will hit sometime around June 2023, given that June is the anniversary of the franchise, and one of the key parts of the update is simply listed as Sonic's birthday, although there's no indication of what that means. However, before all that kicks off, players can expect a free holiday cheer suit DLC for Sonic to sport as he runs through the Starfall Islands, and that DLC arrives on the 21st of December 2022. We can see the full 2023 roadmap, so update 1, there's jukebox, photo mode and new challenges mode. We've got update 2, Sonic's birthday, open zone challenge and new Coco. And update 3, you've got playable characters and also new story. Update 3 appears as though it'd be the most substantial, as it not only promises new story elements, but also additional playable characters. And while it's not confirmed, the image sure seems to hint that those playable characters will be Tails, Knuckles and Amy, although those character images will certainly be more closely tied to the story aspect of that update. However, I'm also excited to see the challenge mode in update 1, and the open zone challenge and new Coco of update 2. Well, Sonic Frontiers arrived for PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch and PC on November the 8th, and you can check out more on Game Informer's website including the review.
Well, finally, in the news today, we've got news about what's coming to Xbox Game Pass in December. This one comes from Ishrak Subhan from Eurogamer. So Microsoft has revealed the games headed to Xbox Game Pass this December. So available today, and that is as of last week, so they're already available. So already available are Eastwood, that's PC, Xbox and Cloud. The Walking Dead, the final season, Xbox, PC and Cloud. And Totally Reliable Delivery Service. That is available on PC. But we also have a bunch of games to look forward to later in the month. As reported on earlier today, the flagship game of the month is LEGO Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. It's going to come available on Xbox, PC and Cloud on the 6th of December. Also arriving on the same day as Hello Neighbor 2, the sequel to the 2017 stealth horror game. Metal Hellsinger is going to be available to Xbox One owners on the 8th of December, having previously only been available on the Xbox Series consoles and the PC and Cloud. First-person shooter, High on Life, produced by Rick and Morty co-creator Justin Roiland, will be a day one launch for Xbox Game Pass on the 13th of December. Then you've got Alchemist Simulator Potion Craft, also be available on the same day on the PC and the Xbox. Hot Wheels Unleashed, the Game of the Year edition, will be available on Xbox, PC and Cloud on the 15th of December, and the game is available for PlayStation Plus in October. Finally, we've got Rainbow Billy, The Curse of the Leviathan, a 2.5D adventure puzzle platformer, also available on the 15th of December. And then PC, Game Pass, and Xbox Game Pass Ultimate will also have access to a 10-hour early trial of Need for Speed Unbound via EA Play. Well, loads of stuff to be excited for there from Xbox Game Pass, and that is it for the news right now. But next up, I'm going to go into my closing thoughts for Season of Plunder and Destiny 2. This season has definitely been a roller coaster. You know, it opened really, really high. Loads of new players coming in via the Epic Game Store. But unfortunately, the Destiny 2 community is really, really frustrated right now. They are venting their frustrations and their anger via Twitter. People are really frustrated at Bungie, mainly because of the state of PvP, but also the seasonal model too. Well, next up, let's go into my review of Destiny 2 and the Season of Plunder. Season of Plunder has nearly come and gone, and it's certainly been a season of ups and downs for Bungie. And today, I'm going to have a look back on all the beats of the season, including the narrative, Arc 3.0, the activities, the loot, the events, PvP, and also the grind. Without further delay, let's dive into Season of Plunder. So Season of Plunder got started in the best possible way. Bungie released Destiny 2 on the Epic Game Store, and we saw a very large player population at the start of the season, with a huge influx of new players. You know, Bungie and Epic had a collaboration going on with Fortnite and Destiny in the game, you know, with Bungie selling Fortnite armor skins and Fortnite putting Zavala, Elsie, Bray and Ikora in their game, plus also recreating Javelin 4. And that was absolutely incredible. We had a big Lightfall reveal talking about Neptune and the neon city of Neo Muna, a new darkness power in Strand hyping up our upcoming battle with the Witness and Callus coming up in Lightfall. A season of Plunder was revealed at the same time, and the mood amongst the community was really, really good. Everyone seemed to dig the pirate theme, and we were excited about Lightfall and how to get there. Well, first up, let's have a look at the story. So, Season of Plunder was all about Eremis, Drifter, Spider, Mithrax, and Ido. We found out more about Mithrax's past, plus Spider was smuggled back into the game with the help of Drifter. We learn this season about the dangerous relics of the darkness containing the remains of a powerful being called Nezrak, who was the disciple of the Lunar Pyramid. 
The Elixni had been searching for these powerful relics and Eremis broke free from a stasis prison and was a constant thorn in the side of Mithrax. Ido and Mithrax have been studying the relics we collected throughout the season and then at the end of the season, Nezarek was turned into a tea and fed to Osiris. Then Osiris woke up and somehow managed to remember that there was a secret hidden on Neptune. Well, mostly, I enjoyed the story this season. Nezarek was a big surprise, even though it got data mined very early and leaked, although I did manage to avoid that, and I did find out through the cutscene when I was supposed to in-game. I did like learning more about Mithrax's dark past, and Spider is a great mob boss-style character. It's definitely good to have him back in the game. Eremis was billed as the main antagonist for the season, but she didn't really show up too much. While there were some good story moments this season, the weekly drip feed of seasonal content appears to definitely be showing its age. Bungie are going for something new happening each week, which is admirable, but the weekly drip feed is getting a little bit stale. Unfortunately, at the end of the season, we had the culmination of the Nezarek story, where he was boiled down into a tea and fed to Osiris to help wake him up. To be honest, that was a little bit weak and also a little bit confusing, because we were led to believe that these relics of Nezarek had a powerful dark power, then all of a sudden, we're boiling them down, making a tea out of it and feeding it to a man in a coma, and suddenly he wakes up with little explanation. You know, over the last few seasons, the narrative in Destiny 2 has been really good, but I think these last couple of weeks have been a little bit of a misstep. Well, next up, we got Arc 3.0, so the final light subclass got its rework this season with Arc 3.0. I enjoyed playing with Arc this season. You know, Titans came out very well with the Storm Grenades, and I really like the Hunter's new Super. Warlock's got the short end of the stick again, although I don't really mind given I tend to play all three classes at the same time. So if I'm not enjoying one class, then I do switch to the other. I started off the season as a Hunter main, and then switched to Warlock and then finally Titan. I spent much of the season trying out builds on all classes, and hopefully you found those build guys useful. Yeah, we're now at the end of these subclass reworks, plus we've got a major balance patch coming in Season 19, so all subclasses are now in the same place as Stasis, which gives us loads of build potential. Next up, we got the seasonal activities. So we had three seasonal activities this time round. Catch Crash, Expeditions and Pirate Hideouts. Expeditions are probably my favourite, and then Pirate Hideouts are a good way to reuse old lost sectors. Catch Crash got stale for me quite quickly, even though Bungie were trying to recreate, you know, a menagerie-style activity. This is another place where the seasonal model is really showing its age. You know, going into the seasonal vendor, ranking up the grid... Seasonal challenges, repeating seasonal activities. Now, I don't really know what Bungie needs to do, but I would like to see a change to the seasonal model. You know, I very much doubt we're going to see a change before Lightfall, and maybe even in Lightfall itself. Bungie are going to have to keep an eye on things, though, because the number of players really fell off this season. You know, Whether that's due to the seasonal activities, I don't think so. You know, I think there's more fundamental issues that Bungie has to deal with in Destiny 2 right now. I do appreciate Bungie gave us three activities, that was great, but the model they exist in just feels stale. Well, next up, we got the King's Fall Raid. So this season, the King's Fall Raid came back, plus loads of great weapons, including Touch of Malice. The raid encounters mainly stayed true to the original, and one of the major changes was for the Oryx encounter. I didn't really engage too much with the returning Destiny 1 raid this time. Last time, we had Vault of Glass, and I must have played that every week without fail, probably until I got Vex. I think I had about 30 looted clears. So I started off with good intentions. I watched the raid race with Clan Elysium winning once again their third in a row. And I did the raid a few times, but for whatever reason, 
it didn't really manage to hold my attention throughout the season. You know, it is one of the better raids in the history of Destiny, although for me, the great content drought of 2015 did come flooding back, with Destiny players only having this raid as an activity for that time. You know, the prospect of Touch of Malice wasn't even enough to keep me coming back. Well, next up we got the loot, so the loot this season was up and down. Our seasonal exotic was a fusion rifle, the Delicate Tomb. That paired up really well with Art 3.0, it's some really interesting lore. I don't think I used it much past the first few weeks though. Seasonal loot was okay, the shotgun being one of the best, and the machine guns had their time in the sun this season, with Thunderlord being a mainstay in my loadout. I haven't said that for about three or four years. The Taipan 4FR was the hot newness at the start of the season, Plus we had the returning classics with the Mindbender's Ambition and the Malicious Birthright, although the Mindbender's Ambition came back as a sad shell of its former self. Trials added a few new weapons in the mix, including a bow and a slug shotgun, and both of them didn't really set the world on fire. Well, next up, let's have a look at the events of this season. We had a few events, one large and a couple of smaller events. Festival of the Lost Return with one of the grindiest seals that we've had in a long time, including 35 Lost Sector runs which is almost enough to put me off entirely. Festival of the Lost included some very cool card designs for the masks. Now, I do find these seal chases motivate me more than the events. I did the Flamekeeper seal for Solstice and now Ghostwriter for Festival of the Lost, so Bungie is making me play more of the events. You know, we had a great new sniper with the Macabre, although Ava handed out a god roll right at the start of the event, which was a little bit strange. Personally, I prefer the Haunted Sectors to the Haunted Forest, but by the time we get to next year, I think they should switch up the gimmick of the festival. Ido was the lore focus this time, plus we had Drifter and less Glint. So Glint is criminally underused, so any opportunity to get more Glint into the game would definitely be welcome. We also had a few smaller events, including the community event at the end of the season, where we had to donate Captain's Coins to rebuild the Elixir Quarter. This was data mined fairly early on in the season, so we were expecting it, and in terms of community events that had gone by in the past, it didn't really live up to their high standards. Telesto decided to bug out for a few days. This time it was intentional, which led the community on a huge secrets chase. You know, this happened to be the near the end of the season that showed how frustrated and bored the community had got by that point. You know, the community are hungry for secrets, something similar to the Whisper mission or the Corridors of Time. Although Bungie did come out and state that encrypting those events or keeping them secret was very expensive, which doused any excitement for future secrets. Next up, let's have a look at PvP. So PvP is not in a good place at all. Bungie did some experimentation with control with SBMM, then they had to go back on that and implement loose SBMM. This seemed to work well for new or low-skilled players, and I'll put myself in that bracket, and made the experience much worse for the high-skilled players yeah, SBMM in Control is strange, given Control is somewhere to hang out in Crucible, and it's supposed to be the casual playlist, and this made it anything but casual. Iron Banner introduced a new game mode called Eruption, which seemed to go much better in the community compared to New Rift last season, and then Trials introduced a couple of new weapons, and ironically Trials seems to be the most casual playlist in PvP right now. Bungie did announce huge plans for a rework coming in Season 19, Across the board with Crucible, they are introducing a ranked game mode, the competitive division. Quick play will quick play is going to be control and clash, and they're going to replace the quick play node when Iron Banner is on to merge the audiences. So one issue with Crucible is there's so many game modes and the player population gets split into too many fragments. So hopefully all of this 
it's going to really help PvP. We also had a massive balance patch as well, and hopefully PvP is going to be in a better place in Season 19. We are going to have to wait and see what difference it makes, but PvP feels like it's on life support at the moment, and the rumours of Bungie working on a PvP competitive hero shooter definitely don't help. Well, next up, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the grind. So this season has been much more of a grind. Bungie raised the requirements for getting a pattern for the seasonal weapons from 3 to 5. Doesn't really sound like much, but the ability to get a deep sight version of a weapon is broken for the first four to six weeks of the season. The seasonal title was extremely grindy, which included killing 50 ruffians, which would have taken multiple hours and have you competing against your fire team for ruffian kills, which relied on RNG. This requirement was reduced to 10 two weeks before the end of the season. Now, Bungie came out and they said they missed the mark when it came to designing the seasonal title this time round. That was all compounded by Festival of the Lost, also a massive grind. Now, as a Destiny player, I do expect some kind of grind, but this season appeared to be more oppressive than normal. It felt like a filler season in many ways, stretching out the story and making it overly grindy. Well, talking about that, let's have a look at where does this rank with other seasons. So, this one was an interesting season. We all started on such a high, and that dropped off quicker than most seasons. You know, community sentiment then soured with many turning to Twitter to publicly proclaim they'd been cancelling their Lightful pre-order, a behaviour, to be honest, I don't really understand. And to me, it seems like a massive cry for attention. Now, compared to other seasons in the Witch Queen expansion, this felt like the weakest one so far. Given it's the middle season, that's probably okay. You don't want a season like Plunder going into a next major expansion. Plunder has probably been the worst season of the Witch Queen DLC so far. The grind, the filler, all adding up to a mid-expansion burnout across the community. I don't normally struggle to make Destiny content, but this season, but this season, interest in Destiny 2 has definitely waned, and the motivation is also definitely harder to muster up than it has been in previous seasons. There's probably a lot of lessons this season Bungie can learn, and hopefully they have some time to tweak and change things before we get to Lightfall, as I fear the player population may dwindle even further. Well, that is it for my review of Season of Plunder. I'd really love to hear what you think about Season of Plunder. You can let me know on TWIVG Podcast, or you can hit me up on Patreon, or you can email me at podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. Well, that is it for now for Destiny 2 and Season of Plunder, and I will see you for the new season on Tuesday. I am actually really, really looking forward to that. But next up, let's see the games coming out in the next few weeks. Well, first of all, on December the 6th, we've got a few games. We've got Divine Knockout, that's PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One and PC. Got Hello Neighbor 2, PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One and PC. We've got Sky, Children of the Light, also out on December the 6th, PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4. On December the 8th, we've got Chained Echoes, that is PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. And then we've got Crossfire Legion, that's coming out on PC, also on December the 8th. On December the 9th, we've got Choo Choo Charles, that's coming out on PC. We've got Dragon Quest Treasures, that's coming to Nintendo Switch. Then on the 12th of December, we've got Wave Tail, PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. Then on the 13th, we've got Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII Reunion, PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. 
High on Life, that is coming out on the Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One and PC. We've got Neon White, that's coming to PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4. We've got Little Gator Game, Switch and PC, that is on December the 14th. Also on the 14th, we've got The Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, that is the next generation version. And then we've got The Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt Complete Edition, coming to PS5, Xbox Series S and X, and also PC. And then we've got Acker, that's coming to Switch and PC. On the 15th of December, we've got Blacktail coming to PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X and PC, also on the 15th of December. And finally, on the 16th of December, it's Resident Evil 7 Biohazard that is coming to Nintendo Switch. We're looking forward a couple of weeks. I've got one more show until the end of the year, and that's going to be on December the 18th, and it's going to be rounding up my year in gaming. So that means Game of the Year 2022, and also, I'm going to be looking at News of the Year in 2022. So let me know down in the comments or let me know on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast or over on Patreon or you can email me at podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. Let me know your Game of the Year list. I'd really, really love to hear from you. And also, let me know your News of the Year. I would love to work in your comments and your feedback into the show. Well, that is it for this week's episode. I'll see you in a few weeks. I'll be back on the 18th of December. And if you want to get involved in the show, get in contact through patreon.com forward slash this week in video games, or you can check out the latest on the website. You can also hit me up on Twitter, I'm at TWIVG Podcast or podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. And thank you so much for listening. And for more This Week in Video Games content like this, you can subscribe on YouTube or you can also share it with a friend. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, you can check out the other podcasts on the feed. Well, thanks again. I'll see you soon.